Section two of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Fox as a Tory. Part two. It was at this crisis that Charles Fox entered Parliament, and it was quickly seen that he could bring to the king's side just what it most wanted. To gain his victory over the Whigs, George had been obliged to oppose himself to the intellect as well as to the morality of the country. By far the ablest statesman and the most commanding figure in English political life was Chatham, and Chatham was now in stern opposition. By far the most respected leader in the House of Lords was the praiseworthy and honest Rockingham, the acknowledged chief of the Whig families, and to counteract the reputation of Rockingham and withstand the thunder of Chatham's eloquence, the court could only oppose the degraded character of Sandwich and the silver tongue of Mansfield. In the House of Commons things were even worse, for Lord North, clever and amiable as he was, had nothing but a shrewd mother-wit to enable him to parry the attacks of Burke's impassioned declamation. A young orator, cool, self-possessed, logical, incisive, and cultured, was a godsend to a party which had to rely upon the venal advocacy of Norton and Wedderburn. Nor was Fox backward in taking advantage of his opportunity. Political cowardice was never one of his failings. He threw himself manfully into the breach, boldly defended the supersession of Wilkes against Burke, supported the committal of Lord Mayor Crosby, forced Lord North to vote with him against his will for the committal of the printer Woodfall, was appointed one of the junior lords of the admiralty and afterwards one of the commissioners of the treasury and was soon looked upon on both sides of the house as among the most able and most unprincipled of the bodyguard of the king it is impossible to credit fox at this period of his career with any settled political convictions though he was a man in education and knowledge of society he was still a boy in judgment and in the enjoyment of life he had not as yet thought or felt deeply on any question. Life was exceedingly pleasant to him, and in the gayness of his epicurean nature he threw himself with zest into every pleasure it afforded. Among these pleasures, politics was by no means the least. It gave unique opportunities for cutting a figure in the world and for paying off old scores. It enabled him to indulge in the malicious pleasure so dear to the heart of the clever young politician, of shocking dull respectability by the vigor of his denunciation and the extravagance of his views. It provided him with a pleasant relief to the more absorbing business of Newmarket or Almax. Careless of everything except the excitement of the moment, Fox plunged into politics and hit hard all around him with the same delightful sense of irresponsibility with which a modern undergraduate overthrows the church and the constitution at a debating society and dances round a bonfire on the 5th of November. His conduct with regard to the marriage laws is the typical exception which proves the rule. Among the many subjects which came before Parliament in the years 1769 to 1774, it was the only one about which he really cared and the only one about which he showed independence. Lord Holland, when approaching middle age, 
had convulsed society in the days of the Pelhams by his runaway match with Lady Carolyn Lennox, the daughter of the Duke of Richmond and great-granddaughter of Charles II. And the scandal occasioned by the marriage had been among the reasons which led to the passing of Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act in 1753. Naturally enough, Lord Holland had been the bitterest opponent of the measure in the House of Commons, and its passing was always regarded in the family as a condemnation of the marriage. Thus, from childhood, Charles Fox had been conversant with this particular subject, and had approached it from a private and family, rather than from a party point of view. And when he had acquired a sufficient experience in the House, he determined to press for its repeal. But in 1772, the question of the marriage laws came before Parliament in an unexpected form. The marriage of the profligate Duke of Cumberland with Mrs. Horton, following as it did hard upon the secret marriage of the Duke of Gloucester with Lady Waldegrave, had filled the mind of the king with fears for the succession and irritation at the insubordination shown by the royal family. He took the matter up with more than his usual alacrity, insisted upon the immediate preparation of a bill to deal with it, rejected a moderate scheme drafted by Thurlow and Wedderburn, and finally forced on the cabinet a measure drawn by Lord Mansfield, by which all descendants of George II were rendered incapable of contracting a valid marriage except with the consent of the Crown. Rumours of the proposal soon got wind and created general dissatisfaction, even among the stoutest henchmen of the court. Fox at once declared his intention of opposing it. Wedderburn swore he would not support it. Hardly a man on the ministerial side of the house could bring himself openly to defend it. Startled at this appearance of mutiny amongst his followers, and probably genuinely distrustful of the effect of opposition upon Fox, Lord North prevailed upon the King and Mansfield to modify their bill in one important particular, and as finally submitted to Parliament, the restriction of marriage only applied to members of the royal family under the age of twenty-six. The modification was useful to the wits. That a prince of the blood might take upon himself the cares of state at the age of eighteen, but those of matrimony not till he was twenty-six, was too good an opportunity to be lost, and the following epigram, said to be the work of Dowdswell, was soon making the circuit of the coffee-houses. Quoth Dick to Tom, this act appears absurd as I'm alive, to take the crown at eighteen years, the wife at twenty-five. The mystery how shall we explain, for sure as Dowdswell said, thus early, if they're fit to reign, they must be fit to wed. Quoth Tom to Dick, thou art a fool, and little knowest of life. Alas, tis easier far to rule a kingdom than a wife. The change might produce an epigram and keep together the ministerial majority, but it could not prevent the secession of Fox. The fact was that he had begun already to realize his own importance and to see that if he wanted to satisfy his ambition, he must make others realize it as well as himself. The opportunity now presented itself of assuming a more independent position on a subject on which he was known to have strong personal convictions and he hastened to seize it. On the 6th of January, 1772, 
he gave notice of a bill to repeal lord hardwick's marriage act on the twentieth of february he sent in his resignation as junior lord of the admiralty and wrote an explanation to lord ossory his friend and connection by marriage i should not have resigned at this moment merely on account of my complaint against lord north if i had not determined to vote against this royal family bill which in place i should be ashamed of doing when the bill reached the house of commons he spoke with studious courtesy of lord north but turned upon the lawyers sir fletcher norton thurlow and wedderburn with great vigour evidently relishing the task of pursuing his father's old enemies from subterfuge to subterfuge till at last he fairly drove them into flat contradiction burke's wit allusions and enthusiasm says horace walpole of the debate were striking but not imposing wedderburn was a sharp clever arguer though unequal charles fox much younger than either was universally allowed to have seized the just point of an argument throughout with most amazing rapidity and clearness and to have excelled even charles townshend as a parliament man though inferior in wit and variety of talents the house of commons readily understood and the ministerial majority readily forgave fox's independent attitude on the royal marriage act unfortunately there was one who looked at the whole matter from a no less personal point of view than fox and who did not understand and never forgave writing to lord north on the twenty sixth of february just after the bill had been introduced into the commons george the third had said it is not a question that immediately relates to administration but personally to myself therefore i have a right to expect a hearty support from every one in my service and shall remember defaulters three days before he had put on record his opinion of fox's recklessness i think mr c fox would have acted more becomingly toward you and myself if he had absented himself from the house for his conduct cannot be attributed to conscience but to his aversion from all restraints the extravagances of fox's private life and the fopperies of his dress and manners were certain to be distasteful to the state and business-like king and to render him little disposed to make allowances for any political misconduct the two had now become opposed to each other on a question in which the personal feelings of each were strongly stirred the registered edict as chatham finally called the royal marriage act had it is true been passed into law and the king had triumphed but fox had been nevertheless in his eyes amongst the worst of the defaulters and george had said that he would remember defaulters thus began the little rift which was soon to grow into so wide and impassable a gulf of separation between fox and the king on the seventh of april seventeen seventy two fox's bill for the repeal of lord hardwick's act came on for discussion the day before fox had been at newmarket losing heavily as usual on the turf on his way back to town to introduce his first important measure into parliament a bill which was to alter the social arrangements of the country and remove a stigma from his family he fell in with some friends at hockerill characteristically enough he spent the night drinking with them instead of preparing for the struggle of the morrow and arrived on the next day at the house without having been to bed at all without having prepared his speech and without even having drafted his bill 
nothing but the most consummate talent could have saved him unprepared with arguments of his own he introduced his bill modestly and gracefully and reserved his strength for his reply when lord north and burke who opposed him should have given him the necessary materials horace walpole thus describes the scene charles fox who had been running about the house talking to different persons and scarcely listening to burke rose with amazing spirit and memory answered both lord north and burke ridiculed the arguments of the former and confuted those of the latter with a shrewdness that from the multiplicity of reasons as much exceeded his father in embracing all the arguments of his antagonist as he did in his manner and delivery this was genius it was almost inspiration genius it certainly was but genius which was solely intent upon its own amusement and glorification the bill was read a first time by a majority of one in spite of lord north's opposition on the nineteenth of may it came on again for discussion but its champion was not there he hurried in from newmarket in time to find his bill thrown out by a large majority without a debate charles fox remained out of office for the rest of the year but did not join the opposition nor alter in the least his tory views except so far as they may have been insensibly altered by the conversation of burke with whom he now began that close and untiring friendship which was only shattered by the french revolution lord north could not but feel the danger of leaving so brilliant a comet in the political horizon to follow his own erratic orbit unregulated and uninfluenced by the sun of ministerial system and in the last days of the year an arrangement was made of course at the expense of the taxpayer by which fox took his place at the treasury board but in office or out of office his nature remained the same ten months of independence had only whetted his appetite responsibility sat very lightly on his shoulders and he was no more likely to lose an opportunity for delighting the house with a piece of brilliant invective out of consideration for his party or his leaders than he was to check his horse at a fence because he did not know what was on the other side the more assured grew his parliamentary position the more hopeless became the state of his finances the more determinedly he rebelled against the bridle of office the more viciously he kicked over the traces he had been hardly two months at the treasury board when he acted as teller for sir w meredith's motion against the imposition of a religious test on matriculation at the universities although a strong whip had been issued by the government on the other side in june of the same year seventeen seventy three he suddenly delivered a most violent philippic against clive although the house at the instance of north had only a month before come to a deliberate judgment on his conduct which amounted to a guarded acquittal and clive at that moment was the possessor of ten government votes in the february of seventeen seventy four came his final and unpardonable indiscretion an attack had appeared in a paper called the public advertiser upon the impartiality of the speaker sir fletcher norton who appealed to the house for an expression of its confidence on this the printer woodfall was ordered to appear at the bar on the fourteenth of february he attended named the well-known ex-vicar of brentford generally known as parson horne as the author pleaded that this was his first offence 
and asked for lenient treatment mollified by his submission the house was about to commit him to the custody of the sergeant-at-arms when charles fox jumped up and moved that he be committed to newgate lord north anxious to avoid another wilkes case nettled at the assumption of leadership by fox and not knowing of any precedent for committal to the sergeant-at-arms moved to commit to the gatehouse instead of newgate as that was out of the jurisdiction of the city at this moment dowdswell produced the very precedent for committal to the sergeant-at-arms which lord north had desired who then entreated fox to release him from his pledge of supporting a committal to prison since it was given under a misapprehension fox self-willed and obstinate refused and forced his leader to the ignominious course of himself voting for a motion of which he disapproved while he begged all his supporters to vote against him End of section two